Welcome to A Feminist in Progress, the podcast that's still all about love. I'm your host, Price, and today's episode is about the eighth chapter of feminist writer Bell Hooks' book, All About Love, New Visions. The chapter is titled, Community, Loving Communion. In the chapter, Bell Hooks argues that love is the foundation of community and that creating loving communities is essential for individual and collective healing. Let's learn more about what Hooks says about creating loving communities in this week's episode. The chapter opens with a quote from Parker Palmer author and activist, who said, Community cannot take root in a divided life. Long before community assumes external shape and form, it must be present as a seed in the undivided self. Only as we are in communion with ourselves can we find community with others. Communities are essential for human survival around the world, as all humans come together to form them. Unlike nuclear families or individualism, communities sustain life. The art of loving is best learned in communities, where M. Scott Peck, an author whom Bell Hooks cites, believes salvation lies. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to get all biblical or Christian here. According to Peck, a community is a group of individuals who communicate honestly have deeper relationships beyond surface-level composure, and make significant commitments to rejoice and mourn together and to make each other's conditions their own. Hooks says we are all born into a world surrounded by the possibility of communities, with family, doctors, nurses, midwives, and even strangers creating a field of connections around us. Children rarely come into the world in isolation, as they are born into communities. She also mentions how, in our society, there is a lot of talk about so-called family values, which usually focus on the nuclear family, consisting of a mother, father, and one or two children. The U.S. often presents this family unit as the primary and most desirable way to raise children with the belief that it will lead to optimal well-being for everyone involved. However, this is an idealized image of family life that does not reflect reality. Very few people in our society actually live in this type of environment, she says, and even those raised in nuclear families often have a larger extended family unit. More or less kind of like what we have in Asian families, Capitalism and patriarchy, as structures of domination, have worked together to undermine and destroy the extended family unit, according to Hooks, by replacing the family community with a more privatized and autocratic nuclear family, alienation increased, and abuses of power became more possible. This also gave absolute rule to the father and secondary rule over children to the mother. Segregating nuclear families from the extended family, Hooks says, forced women to become more dependent on an individual man, 
and children more dependent on an individual woman. This dependency created a breeding ground for abuses of power. Hooks says the patriarchal nuclear family has been shown to be a failure, with numerous examples of dysfunction, emotional chaos, neglect, and abuse. Despite this, some people continue to insist that it is the best environment for raising children, although this belief is based on denial. While extended families are not immune to dysfunction, their larger size and inclusion of non-blood relatives means they are more diverse and likely to include some individuals who are both sane and loving. She likewise talks about how the privatized patriarchal nuclear family is a relatively new societal structure, and most people in the world don't have the resources to live in such small, isolated units. Hook says that in the U.S., economic factors like high housing costs and unemployment are causing grown children to stay with their families longer or to return home after leaving. She mentions anthropologists and sociologists have found that small, patriarchal families are often unhealthy environments for all members. Around the world, the best parenting practices are those that take place within the context of extended family and community networks. She says that to foster a sense of community, extended families can be beneficial, but this can only be achieved through open and honest communication among its members. Dysfunctional extended families, like nuclear families, often struggle with unclear communication due to the keeping off family secrets. She mentions how, in the past, an advertisement used the slogan, the family that prays together stays together, which I too have heard growing up Catholic. But as a teenager, Hooks heard this slogan and actually changed it to, the family that talks together stays together. What she's come to realize is this, Talking together is one way to make community. If we don't experience love and a sense of community within our extended families, then we can turn to friendship as another opportunity to build relationships and feel loved, Hooks says. Unlike family, we have the ability to choose our friends and many of us have relied on them. Unlike family, We have the ability to choose our friends and many of us have relied on them for support, knowledge, and growth throughout our lives. The common belief we are taught is that we will find love either in our first family or in our committed romantic relationships, mainly those leading to marriage or lifelong partnerships. As children, we are often taught that friendship should not be considered as important as family connections. However, for many of us, friendships are where we experience the initial taste of redeeming love and nurturing community. At least, that's what Hook says. When we learn to love in our friendships, we develop the ability to bring this love to other relationships with family or romantic partners. I'm thankful I was able to form and nurture loving friendships before I met my romantic partner. These friends saw me through darkness and light. I've laughed with them and cried with them. 
The friends I consider my most treasured are friends I met in college. In a way, we grew up together. But there are also some friends whom I've met through work, through, yeah, work, now that I think about it. In one way or another, some of the friendships, they're not necessarily people I worked with, literally. Although I can think of one exception. But a lot of my most treasured friends, the kind of friends that I know I can depend on and rely on, are people that I met in my 20s. And specifically for my really best friends, we came out of college and saw each other through our 20s. And now we're actually seeing each other through our 30s. We're not the kind of friends who we see each other frequently, nor are we the friends who've gone on trips and vacations together. But anytime we come together to catch up, whether through a meal or some other activity, the communion feels like coming home. Reading this chapter was a much-needed reminder for me as I get ready to officially make one of life's biggest commitments. Hooks's words gently remind me that we often do not give much thought to our friendships even though they provide us with enjoyable and mutually beneficial interactions. We often consider them less important than romantic relationships, which leads to undervaluing them. This disregard for our friendships generates an emotional emptiness that we may not realize when we focus entirely on finding a romantic partner or dedicating all our time and attention to a significant other. If we sever our connections with friends and focus exclusively on romantic relationships, it is more probable that those relationships will become codependent. And I am grateful that I have my person. I'm even more grateful that he's not someone who isolates me from my community. That is, my family and friends. Nor does he hold it against me when I do choose to spend quality time with them. In turn... I do not hold it against my partner when he spends time with his friends, nor do I discourage him from nurturing his friendships. When our romantic relationships are truly authentic, we do not feel the need to sacrifice our friendships to strengthen our bond with our partner. This chapter reminded me that trust is a crucial element of genuine love. Hooks says, We must trust that our partner's relationships with their friends will not diminish our connection. In fact, we come to realize through experience that the strong connections we build in our friendships only enhance our intimate relationships. Hooks defines love as the will to nurture one's own or another's spiritual growth, revealed through acts of care, respect, knowing and assuming responsibility. And this definition is the foundation of all love in our life. Love is not a feeling that is solely reserved for romantic partners. Instead, genuine love serves as the basis for how we interact with ourselves, our family, friends, and partners. Although the nature of these relationships may differ, the values that guide our behavior should be consistent and rooted in love. This means that regardless of the situation, a love ethic should be the foundation of how we treat and engage with others. 
In the chapter, Hooks shares her experience of being in a verbally and physically abusive romantic relationship at some point in her life. She talks about how her lack of knowledge about the art of loving put her relationship in jeopardy from the very beginning. Over the course of their 14-year relationship, they were too preoccupied with repeating old patterns learned in childhood and acting on misguided beliefs about love to recognize the changes they needed to make within themselves to truly love someone else. It is crucial to note that, like many others, regardless of sexual orientation, you know, who are in relationships where they experience intimate terrorism, she could have left that relationship sooner or regained her sense of self if she had brought the same level of respect, care, understanding, and accountability that she brought to her friendships. Hook says women, who would never tolerate an emotionally and physically abusive friendship, often endure such violations in romantic relationships. If they held these relationships to the same standards as their friendships, they would not accept being victimized. She did get out of that relationship, but she admits she was terribly alone and lonely when she did. She came to learn that Living a fulfilling life means surrounding oneself with loved ones and nurturing those relationships through commitment. Many people may only realize the importance of this after experiencing loneliness and disconnection from friends. Hooks argues that the principles of love are the same for all meaningful relationships, not just romantic ones. Both the fear of being abandoned and actually experiencing it have shown that love is the key to any significant bond. Loving well is a necessary task in all meaningful relationships. Being compassionate and forgiving is necessary to sustain ties within a loving community. Hooks cites Eric Butterworth, who in his book, Life is for Loving, stresses the importance of forgiveness saying that it is essential to experience healing, comfort, and harmonizing love. To forgive, we must generously release others from their guilt or anguish, which requires understanding the negative actions of another. However, forgiveness does not guarantee an immediate improvement in everything. Even in a loving community, conflicts, betrayals, and negative outcomes can still occur and bad things can happen to good people. Nevertheless, love enables us to confront these negative realities in a way that affirms and enhances life. Hooks says the desire for a loving community is universal, as it brings happiness to life. However, some individuals only see community as a way to avoid being alone. The ability to be comfortable in solitude is crucial for developing the skill of loving. When we learn to be alone, we can relate to others without relying on them as an escape from loneliness. She quotes theologian Henry Nowen, whose name I am probably botching, who said, Loneliness makes us cling to others in desperation. Solitude allows us to respect others in their uniqueness and create community. Moving from a state of solitude to one of communal living expands our ability to connect with others on a deeper level. 
Hook says that by participating in communal activities, we gain insight into how to support and assist each other, which is a fundamental aspect of loving in a community. This chapter ends with Hooks emphasizing the importance of service as another dimension of communal love. She suggests that service is a critical aspect of love that requires us to act selflessly for the well-being of others. She explains that service is not just about helping others, but also about empowering them and fostering their growth and development. Hooks believes that service is essential to building a loving community and cultivating a sense of interconnectedness and interdependence among its members. The love that we create within a community remains within us, and using this understanding as our reference point, we transform any place we visit into a place where we reconnect with love. Thanks for joining me in this episode of A Feminist in Progress. If you find value in what I do, consider giving a voluntary donation through the PayPal and GCash details in the episode description. Another way to support the show is by following us on social media at Feminist in Progress Pod on Instagram or a Feminist in Progress Podcast on Facebook. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or by sharing links to the episode to someone you know would benefit from the show. Until next time, remember that when it comes to creating loving communities, it's about progress, not perfection.